If more of us had read Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, we might not be in this fine mess, because that book was the first ever published about climate change back in 1989, when the general discourse was just beginning to open up towards the consideration of something called the greenhouse effect, which sort of just made it sound like plants would grow really nicely. Today, Bill McKibben is regarded as one of the foremost voices on the environment of our time. I want to quote what the Democratic Senator Jamie Raskin says about McKibben. Quote, If we survive the interlocking plagues of climate change, right-wing authoritarianism, and savage inequality, future generations will utter the name of the moral visionary and activist McKibben with the same reverence we speak of Emerson or Thoreau. Let's hear from Bill McKibben. Hello, everybody. My, do I wish that I was in Cape Town with you. It's one of my favorite cities on Earth. There is no place more beautiful um, and no place richer in the history of struggle. Um, the last time I was there, I had the privilege of sitting down with Archbishop Tutu, and it's one of the most memorable occasions of my life. Um, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. First, let me introduce myself. My name's Bill McKibben. I'm a writer and an activist. I wrote the first book about climate change, uh, a book called The End of Nature, way back in 1989. And here's the terrible thing. We knew everything back then that we know now about climate change. We knew what caused it. When you burn coal and gas and oil, you put carbon in the atmosphere and it traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. We knew what was going to happen. The scientists told us quite directly what was going to happen. We knew what we should do. Get off coal and gas and oil. Replace them with renewable energy. But we didn't do it. And so now we're in a deep hole. We've produced more CO2 since I wrote that book than in all of human history before. The fossil fuel industry has proved extremely, extremely adept at keeping their business model going, even in the face of all that science and now all that suffering. Suffering that, as usual, is visited first and foremost among the people who did the least to cause it. Africa's only put three or four percent of all the CO2 into the atmosphere, but it's been probably the biggest victim already of climate change. So the job now is not to cry over what we haven't done, but plan for what we're going to do. And the possibilities are powerful and myriad. Scientists and engineers have done wonderful work. In the last decade, they've dropped the price of renewable energy 90%. We live on a planet in which the cheapest way to produce power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. I've had the real moving joy of watching in rural Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire or Tanzania as communities that had never had power got their first power from the sun. But wherever we are, it is an extraordinary thing that this is the cheapest way we know how to produce energy. It means that we could start putting combustion behind us. And if we did that, we not only would begin to rein in climate change, we also 
would dramatically reduce the 9 million people a year who die from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel. That's one death in five on this planet, people whose lungs are clogged with those particulates. You know, you see it most dramatically in the great cities of Asia, Delhi or Shanghai, but you see it in the cities of Africa too, and you see it really everywhere where people have to breathe air that's filled with smoke. We don't need to be doing that anymore. We have the technology to substitute energy from heaven for energy from hell. We just have to get on with it. So that's what I want to talk about, getting on with it. It means in every country that I've ever been to, and 350.org, which I founded, has organized demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. It means everywhere standing up to the fossil fuel industry, getting people to put pressure on our leaders to stop taking the easy course. One of the tactics that we adopted over the years was what was called the fossil fuel divestment movement. It was modeled squarely on the divestment movement that arose in opposition to the apartheid regime in South Africa. I was in college in the 1980s, and so I was a part of that movement around apartheid. It was a great privilege to get to do that. Twelve or so years ago, we decided we'd try the same thing around fossil fuel. And the first thing we did was call Archbishop Tutu to ask if it was okay. And he said, please take this tactic that we used because climate change is now the human rights challenge of our time, the way that apartheid was a generation ago. And so we did. And it's now become the largest corporate campaign like that in history. We're at $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have agreed to sell their stock in coal and oil and gas. And it's really helping. It's putting pressure on these industries. Now we're fighting the big banks, the city banks and the chase banks and things that keep lending money to this industry, even though scientists have told us that their expansion must stop. This isn't easy work because it means standing up to very powerful people and very rich people. And that's not what our leaders like to do. Usually instead of standing up to them, our leaders like to suck up to them. But we can't have that anymore. And so people have been rising up in huge numbers. Young people, you know about Greta Thunberg and all the many millions of young people that she's inspired. One of her greatest colleagues and one of my favorite people in this fight is the young Ugandan activist Vanessa Nakate. She really, as much as anyone, seems to me a, a, a voice for the continent, a young continent. And you've seen her and others do things like lead this fight against the East Africa crude oil pipeline and all the other antiquated, archaic, wrong-headed plans that the fossil fuel industry still has for Africa. But it can't just be the young people. I'm now organizing old people like me. In America, we've put together a group called Third Act that has 
hundreds of chapters and tens of thousands of people who are going to jail, who are standing up to the banks and the fossil fuel industry, who are doing everything they can to back up those young people. This is a fight. This is the greatest fight of our time. It's probably the greatest fight that our species has ever had to take on. We do not know the outcome because it is a timed test. In some ways, the great civil rights battles, like the fight against apartheid, hard as they were, had a certain inevitability about them. Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. What he meant was, this may take a while, but we're going to win. The arc of the physical universe is short and it bends toward heat. If we don't win fast, we never will win. That's why it's so important that people stand up now and make their voices heard. And I know that you will, and I am very grateful to your work. And I look forward to joining you in Cape Town sometime before too long to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder in this effort. Thank you very, very much. Mm -hmm.